Welcome to a very special episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and you have made it to my launch day episode. It's today. Today is the day that my first book, Rethinking Rest, launches, and I am so excited. (laughs) And I'm throwing a launch party at the Ikebox Coffee House in Salem, Oregon. So if you're listening in time, all the details are on the front page at RethinkingScripture.com. I'd love to see you there. Different from other episodes, I'm going to take a little bit of time here at the beginning to just walk you through some of the things that I've learned in the publishing process that has gotten me to this day, to launch day. And then I'm going to finish the episode by playing the audio version of the introduction of the book that I've already recorded, just to get your feet wet. So if this happens to be the first episode that you've ever listened to, just know that I've been talking about this day, launch day for my book, for quite some time. And to introduce the publishing process, I'm going to be referring to a blog post by Julie Cantrell entitled, 10 Things to Know Before You Publish a Book. And I'm reading this after the fact, but eerily, the 10 things that she brings up, I found my way through them pretty well. So according to Cantrell, the first thing that you should do is finish writing the book. (laughs) And that totally makes sense. And for me, this was quite a process. Because the first version of this book started out as my doctoral project that was finished back in 2017, I then decided I wanted to write a devotional version of that, and I did everything I could just to revamp what I had already written. But doctoral projects are written in such a way that uh, only a handful of people ever really want to read them, and some of those people you actually pay to read it. So... After a few weeks of really trying to revamp what I already had and figuring out that wouldn't work, I decided that I would teach a class at my church. And then based on the class and the organization of that class, that would be the format that I used for writing my manuscript. And that worked really well. I actually taught the class. I videotaped it. All those videos are up at rethinkingrest.com. And then I literally sat down with those videos after I was done and started manuscripting my transcript. And when I got that done, I went back through it, obviously, and did a lot of editing and revamping and adding to, but that was the basic structure of my book. So it's really written in a conversational tone. So I did that class at my church in the spring, summer of 2019, and then I took the next year to kind of just work on my manuscript In the fall of 2020, my sister unexpectedly passed away, and that kind of sucked all the energy out of my writing process for a while. But then on a retreat weekend in Central Oregon, I shared my unfinished manuscript with someone that had been in the publishing industry before, and he really encouraged me to finish, to get finished, and then maybe look for an agent. So with that encouragement, I finished the manuscript and started looking for an agent. And that process really didn't even get a chance to get started because as I finished the book, I reached out, uh, just cold called John Walton. 
I found some information on how I might be able to contact him. I left a voicemail for him and he actually got back to me. It was during the middle of the pandemic and I'm guessing he may have had some extra time on his hands. So finish the book. Number one, that was a little of my process. Cantrell's number two is hire an editor, which I didn't do, but unexpectedly, my interaction with John Walton actually turned into Cantrell's number two, hire an editor. After reading through my first draft, John Walton offered to go through a couple rounds of edits with me from a theological standpoint. And so I spent several months in early 2021 going through that process back and forth via email with John Walton. And obviously, he's an experienced author. He's worked with publishers. He gave me some incredible insight as to things I was missing, how I should reword things, landmines I should steer clear of to stay focused on the topic. So my interaction with John actually covered numbers two and three, hire an editor and choose your editor based on your specific needs. And my specific needs based on this manuscript were I needed really a theologian who was also, by the way, a great wordsmith. And he helped me in both of those areas. Number four on the list is research the three options for publishing. And Cantrell lists those as traditional, indie, which is independent, you can do it yourself, or a hybrid. And I went through this process because at the end of the editing process with Dr. Walton, I got the chance to submit directly to some of the best-known publishers out there. And my experience having never authored a book before and having pretty much no social media following at the time. The first publisher, they took uh, several months. Uh, and at the end of that process, uh, they said, absolutely not. We're not interested. <laughs> and uh, thankfully, the second publisher uh, didn't last that long. It only took about six weeks. And the answer was very much the same. Traditional publishing, what I have found out, is turned into a how many followers do you have on social media? What's your platform look like? How many books are we going to sell? And I think it's always been that way. I think they've always been into selling books, but it's the social media platform that has really taken over how books are sold. So publishers today, they're really looking for people with established platforms that have a lot of followers so that they can sell books immediately. Well, that wasn't me. <laughs> so the traditional route came to a screeching halt. And John Walton said, I think I've done just about everything I can do for you. So I had to look at the independent route or the hybrid. And somebody suggested the hybrid. And there was a company here in Central Oregon, Deep River Books. And I looked into them. They seemed like a great fit. And so with a hybrid, what you're doing is you're not doing all the work yourself, hiring the editors and the typesetters and the book cover design and all of that stuff. You hire a company that does that and does it well, and then you start working on promotion. And so I signed the contract with Deep River in January of 2022, and they said the process usually takes a year. Actually, they said 10 months to a year. And I was thinking maybe, oh, it'd be great to have this book out by Christmas time. So we could, you know, catch the Christmas rush. 
But they came up with January 19th as the release date. And honestly, after I had time to think about it, I am so glad we're launching in January versus trying to get uh, word out amid the Christmas rush when everybody is already distracted so much in our society. So after looking through all the options for publishing, the traditional route was sort of taken off the shelf for me by other people. And then I decided the hybrid route was best for me. Cantrell's article spins several of the top 10 list on this process. Number five, if you choose to pitch traditional publishers, first find an agent. I kind of did that with John Walton introducing me to the publishers. So that got my foot in the door. But even with that help, my lack of a track record didn't make me appealing to them at all. <laughs> Number six on Cantrell's list. Oh, so that little O that you just heard was me looking out the window and seeing the UPS truck drive down the road towards our house. And on that UPS truck were four boxes containing 250 copies of my book. Hot off the press, I now have it literally in my hand as I am talking to you. So, so excited. I walked over and gave a copy to my mom, filmed her reaction. That was priceless. And it is, uh, I'm, I'm pretty pleased. I'm pretty pleased with the finished product. Got to say it's a little bit bigger than I thought in uh, overall size, but the thickness is a little bit skinnier than I thought it would be. So it's a good devotional size book, not too intimidating. So getting back to Cantrell's list, number six, if choosing to self-publish weigh the two options. I totally did that. I decided very quickly. I did not want to be bogged down by having to hire people to do things that I, I'm not an expert in. So I just decided to go the hybrid route and that was perfect for me. And that actually leads to number seven. If those two options seem too stressful and if your budget allows, you may want to look into hybrid alternatives. So that was totally uh, my budget allowed and I did not want to invite that stress of indie publishing into my life. So number nine, leave your ego at the door. And I am hopefully going to be able to do that, although today's a proud day. So I'll just let that be um, today and then we'll get back to work tomorrow. Uh, and then number 10, move on to the next story. And I've already kind of done that. Uh, last week when I was swimming, that's my thinking time. I've done on the podcast here, the Rethinking Advent series last year, and then I did a rewind version of the story this year. And I've decided that's going to be my next project is a children's book uh, retelling the Advent story correcting those items that we've allowed to slip into the story and that have become very familiar. And I'm going to be retelling that story in a children's book form. And I've already acquired rethinkingadvent.com. That's my next project. So I'm very excited that um, not just have I gotten the book out, but number 10 on Cantrell's list, move on to the next story. And I feel like I've already got that uh, kind of in process. To round out today's episode, I'm going to read to you the introduction of the book 
So this is before chapter one. It's uh, my introduction, and I've actually pre-recorded this for the audio version of the book. So I'll just hit play in just a second, and this will be a little background for you, give you a flavor of how the book starts and maybe where it's going. So with that in mind, let's get started. Introduction. I'm wondering why you picked up this book about rest. Of all the subjects available and all the things people are studying and learning these days, what caused you to open up this one just now? What's going on in your life that brought you here? Well, let me guess. You're tired. (laughs) You've got low energy. Your motivation is not what it used to be. And before you go to the doctor to get a pill to fix it, you thought you'd read a (laughs) Sorry. Now I'm projecting. Those are some of my issues. Whatever your reasoning, this book will challenge you to rethink your concept of rest. Would you expect anything less from something so titled? And your timing is exceptional because rethinking seems to be in vogue. The information age is hurling unprecedented levels of previously unknown data at humanity at a blinding pace. This onslaught of information has caused us to re-examine many previously well-established conclusions. For instance, I grew up thinking Pluto was not only a lovable cartoon character, but also a planet in our solar system. It's new information that has caused us to rethink some of our celestial assumptions. Adam Grant, author of Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know, suggests that the ability to rethink well-established ideas is an important skill set. But it's not always our favorite thing to do. There are deeply seated reasons behind our resistance to rethinking. According to Grant, we often prefer the ease of hanging on to old views over the difficulty of grappling with new ones. Yet, there are also deeper forces behind our resistance to rethinking. Questioning ourselves makes the world more unpredictable. It requires us to admit that the facts may have changed, that what was once right may now be wrong. Reconsidering something we deeply believe can threaten our identities, making it feel as if we're losing a part of ourselves. And this may be one reason why new information isn't always welcomed in the church. One might think, if God doesn't change, why would we need to rethink well-established ideas? But those committed to thoroughly understanding the Bible have always been willing to consider new information. And in the last hundred years, much has been unearthed that's worthy of further study. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls between 1947 and 56 is but one example of new information within the last century that has given scholars much to rethink. At the same time, it's important to remember that this process of discovery and consideration does not require one to abandon well-established theology. In his book, Old Testament Theology for Christians, John H. Walton suggests, rethinking interpretation of a particular passage need not be viewed as undermining larger theological issues. In this book, I will challenge you to reconsider several assumptions you may have regarding biblical rest. I'll ask you to expand your definitions to include things you may not have previously considered. But be assured, my purposes are not to undermine God's rest. I only wish to bring clarity to the topic. 
everyone seems to have well-established ideas of what rest is. There's even a culture war between society and religion to define the concept. But when pushed to clearly define the stuff of rest, it is often an exercise of smoke and mirrors. The harder we try to define rest, the less of it we all seem to have. This book will help change that. It will consider new information and give new categories to our data. Grant points out the double standard society has regarding rethinking. We laugh at people who still use Windows 95, yet we still cling to opinions that we formed in 1995. We listen to views that make us feel good instead of ideas that make us think hard. In regard to biblical rest, this book is all about the latter and not so much the former. I grew up playing baseball. There was a strong Little League tradition in our small Pacific Northwest community. And one of the years I was in middle school in the early 1980s, our local high school baseball team made it to the playoffs. Most of the postseason games that year were played on weekdays after school, but the championship game happened to be scheduled for a Saturday afternoon. And normally this is a great idea. It allows teams and families time to travel and for the community to fully support their athletes. That particular year, one of the best pitchers on the team and his family consistently observed a seventh-day Sabbath. His family took Saturdays off from many of their normal weekday activities for religious purposes. As the team kept winning their playoff games, I remember there being a great conversation in the community about whether the star pitcher would choose to play if they made it to the championship game. The team did keep winning, and they qualified to play that Saturday afternoon. After much discussion, and I'm assuming prayerful consideration as well, the pitcher decided to play in the title game. And even though they lost a close one-run contest that day, the conversation surrounding the decision to play, or not, made an early impact on my idea of the Sabbath. That baseball season was just a couple years after the movie Chariots of Fire had won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. For those who haven't seen it, Chariots of Fire is a film based on the true story of two British Olympic athletes in the 1924 Games. One of the athletes, Eric Liddell, was favored to win the 100-meter dash. Liddell was a devoutly religious man and refused to run in a qualifying heat because it was held on Sunday. Though I was young at the time, I remember being somewhat confused about how many different ideas and practices there were regarding this sacred concept. One athlete refuses to run on Sunday. Another doesn't know if he should play baseball on Saturday. These ambiguities and many others like them have led to a general state of confusion for many. It's common for followers of Jesus to second-guess what the Sabbath is and how they should respond to it. Although rest is an ancient idea, it has found its way into modern culture in various forms. And it's not just for those that go to church anymore. Even secular society, lost somewhere between sleepless nights and chaotic schedules, has a somewhat romantic idea of what rest might mean. Taking a sabbatical has a nice ring to it. Some might think it's just another way to talk about a vacation, but few find the place where the roads cross, where the theory of rest meets the opportunity in life. 
If there were ever a time where resting was more countercultural and spiritually needed, it is now. I think we can all agree that biblical rest is a confusing topic. It has been for me, and I don't think I'm alone. I grew up attending church, and one might think that church attendance would bring more clarity, but it was in the church that I found the greatest diversity regarding rest. The author, Rachel Held Evans, suggests that the evangelical culture has failed to develop a robust theology of rest or of Sabbath, and she is careful to separate rest and Sabbath. To stress the point that all Sabbath is rest, but not all rest is Sabbath. Most, within evangelicalism, have assumed rest was simply one variation or another of observing the weekly Sabbath, the fourth commandment. For years, that's what I assumed too. My early confusion led to apathy, and eventually, even though I remained a believer in Christ, I lost interest in the Sabbath. It was later in life, while in my master's program, that I began to re-engage with the topic. As I studied the book of Hebrews, I began to ask new questions about biblical rest. Those questions and the answers that followed led me to a surprising discovery, a greater understanding, and the desire to share my findings on this topic. So, to begin, let's ask these questions. What day is the Sabbath? How do you interact with the concept of rest? How does rest influence your life on a weekly or even a monthly basis? I've asked many people these questions, and they've responded in dramatically different ways. Most of them fit into five similar categories that we will briefly discuss in the first chapter. My guess is that your response would fit into one of these categories as well. But this book isn't meant to settle arguments about what day the Sabbath is what activities are approved, or which ones should be avoided on such a day. Rather, let's have a biblical discussion about godly rest. I propose we start at the beginning, Genesis, and hop and skip our way through the story of God and his creation. We will see that the idea of rest plays a surprisingly large and ever-expanding role in the overall biblical story. The mistake most of us make is when we allow our idea of larger biblical concepts to develop out of just one or two Bible passages. Instead, we will see that the context of each individual passage is really best understood from within a forest for the trees perspective. It's this broad context that will speak most loudly to much of the Sabbath confusion. In addition to examining the larger context of rest, we will also try to answer some of the relevant questions you might be asking, like, why is it that God rested on the seventh day of creation? I thought he was all-powerful. How is humanity's rest related to God's rest? Is the Sabbath always on a particular day of the week? How does God define work? Can someone piece together a Sabbath experience in several short bursts throughout the week? Does God expect believers today to practice Sabbath? And how might all of this relate to the ministry of Jesus and what he had to say about rest? These are all good questions, and we will discuss both theological and practical responses to each, and many more you probably haven't even considered yet. Whatever your motivation is for reading this book, 
I'm guessing you wouldn't refuse if someone offered you a satisfying recipe for rest and a compelling argument to rethink what it means. The concepts I lay out in the following chapters have completely changed the way I approach biblical rest. Not only have my definitions changed, but so have the practical ways I pursue rest. Biblical rest is a large part of God's story, but the church today is largely missing the breadth, depth, and beauty of Christ's easy yoke. So, no matter where you find yourself on the Sabbath spectrum, I hope to awaken dormant interests, stretch established ideas, and bring new perspectives on the often ignored offer of biblical rest to the table. I invite you to turn the page and join me on the journey. Thanks for listening to this special episode of the Rethinking Scripture podcast, my launch day episode. I am so excited that the book is actually available. And I just wanted to take a second to thank everyone on my launch team, all my beta readers, all my people that have proofread, given me ideas, given me feedback along the way. I say in the acknowledgments that there is a great crowd of witnesses who have contributed to this process, and that is totally true. It includes not only the people that I listed in the book, but there were even many more people that have contributed to this process. So thank you very much. And in advance, for those of you that decide to get a copy and interact with the content, just thank you for your time and attention to the topic. And I've chosen to wear a shirt today that my son Jake got me. It says, relish today, catch up tomorrow. And that's exactly what I plan on doing.